Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 5. You know, this Friday, while everybody else is coming back and school is starting, I'm going on vacation. I don't know where I'm going. This is the first time we've ever done this. Never, never, uh, we're going to be next Sunday with the church I pastored from 1983 to 1991 in Stone Mountain, Georgia. They're having a big homecoming and ask us to come back, and so we're going to do that. And that's the first two days of our vacation. And from that point on, we don't know what we're going to do. I decided what I'm going to do during this song service. I'm going to go find where that guy's standing on those cliffs with those rolling waves coming in. That's what I want to do. Uh, so I'll uh, see how Retta likes that. Anyway, um, that just uh, during that song, for some reason, that just hit me that that, that is the the creation declaring the glory of God, the power of God, the majesty of God in such a beautiful way. John chapter 5, as we come to look at this section in John's gospel, starting in verse 16, I want to read through verse 24. It's really a continuation of what we looked at last week where Jesus healed the, the man who had been uh, crippled for 38 years. and He healed him and brought healing to him. And, and caused quite a stir. But the stir he caused with healing the man on the Sabbath is not anything compared to what he just caused, the stir he causes when he starts talking after he heals that man. So hear the word of the Lord. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes or to whom he pleases. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son." So that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. Now, there, there's several, several important things I want you to see just sort of as an introduction to this passage before we look at the real, the real meat of what Jesus is saying here. I want you to see here is a, a great example of the humility and the humbling of himself by Jesus. Jesus was with the Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, the Son. And apart from Him was not anything made that was made. He was there in the beginning with the Father. He was exalted, He was high, and He's lifted up. Then He humbled Himself. 
We'll look at that in a few minutes out of Philippians chapter 2 where he humbled himself and became as a man, became a man, became, came in the flesh, flesh and blood to live among us. The one who has exalted God, part of the deity, part of the, tri, uh, the trinity, the triunity of God, he became a man, took on flesh, and dwelled among us that we might see truth and might see glory. The law came through Moses, John said, truth and grace come through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus came that we might understand truth and that we might see grace and understand what grace is all about. So he was high up and he came down. Verses 19 and 20 kind of talk about that a little bit. The son does nothing of himself. Wait a minute. If he's part of the deity, why does he do nothing of himself? He depends on the father. That's that humbling, becoming as a servant, becoming as a slave himself, that he might be a redeemer on the cross. I mean, he was high up and he humbled himself so that he might be exalted high up again to the right hand of the Father. When through the resurrection, through the ascension, we see him ascend into heavens, into the heavens and he, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. I mean, the, the, the Scripture is filled with that reality that, that the key to the Christian life that Jesus Christ shows us is, is wrapped up in uh, what we would call humility, humbleness, humbling ourselves. One of the most practical principles, and, and quite honestly, one of the most unpopular principles of Christianity goes something like this. The way up is down. The way to reign is to submit. The way to power is to serve. The way to happiness is not to seek your own happiness, but to seek the happiness of others. The way to exaltation is humility. Those whom humble themselves, the Lord will exalt, the Scripture says. And the way to find your life is to lose it for the gospel. And that's just that's the essence of the Christian message of humility that runs throughout the Scripture. That's the example that Jesus Christ gave us, being high and exalted, exalted, humbling himself, and then being exalted again. The, the truth of the matter is, that's the key to Christianity. That's the key to happiness. That's the key to peace. That's the key, key to, to, to living the life that you're called to live on this earth. Now, i got to be honest with you, that flies in the face of every self-help book that you can pull off a shelf anywhere. Every self-help book says if you want to get ahead, you've got to exalt yourself. You've got to push yourself. You've got to you know, put yourself out front. You've got to try to be better. Scripture says, no, if you want to be exalted, you've got to humble yourself and be a servant. If you want to be first, you've got to be last. If you want to lead, you've got to follow and you've got to submit. I mean, that just goes in the face of all help, self-help literature. But I'll tell you what, it even goes in the face of common, what we would call common sense today. Common sense says, hey, if, if you don't toot your own horn, nobody else is going to toot it. You've heard that. You know, if you don't toot it loud, nobody's going to hear it. So, so toot your own horn, exalt yourself, show people how great you are. But Jesus says, no, I want you to learn to honor me. I want you to learn in your life not to exalt and honor yourself, but I want you to learn to exalt me and honor me and submit yourself to my will in everything in your life. That's not an easy thing to do but it's what we're called to do. I'm reminded of, of a, a, a great musician. I, I'm told he is. I like to listen to his music. I'm not a musician by training or by giftedness. But, but I love to read stories about Johann Sebastian Bach. I just like the name, to be honest with you. But, but Johann Sebastian Bach, he wrote over 220 cantatas for the church, for worship. 
and, and, he, and, and they're, they're beautiful cantatas, but at the end of every cantata, everything he wrote, at the end of it, the very last thing on the page, the written music and words, he would write three little letters, S-D-G. They're the same, they stand for the same thing that's right across the, the Lord's Supper table here. Sola Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Here was this great musician. Here was this, this genius in the area of music. And yet his whole life was given not to exalting himself, not to glorifying himself, but to glorifying God in every piece of music that he wrote. And just in case you missed it in the music and the words themselves, he put it at the end of the song. Here is the purpose of the song. Solo Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. I, I, I read several years ago when, when all of box works, church works, were released on about I think it was about 89 CDs, the whole set. And a, a, a reviewer in the New York Times was reviewing it. I went and looked it up last night. I remembered reading it back in the 90s, but I, I pulled it down off the New York Times website last night and looked at it again. A reviewer was reviewing this, this set of works by Bach, and, and he, was, he was perplexed a little bit because he was a music uh, critic, and, and he was perplexed a bit because the words had been con, con, included in all these works of Bach. And he said, you know, for years, most musicians did only the music, musical part of Bach's works because musicians were somewhat embarrassed by the words. The words talked about the sinfulness of man and the glory of God. The, the words talked about submitting ourselves to God because we are sinful and in need of God, and apart from Him, we can do nothing. I mean, these words are all about exalting God, exalting Jesus Christ, and humiliating man. And so musicians were embarrassed to do it. This writer made a comment sort of like this. He said, you know, for so many years, we always thought Bach was really just a really cool guy, a really a musical genius. Now we find out he's nothing but just another conservative Christian. And he was troubled by that a bit. Because Bach, they felt like, should have been influenced by the Enlightenment, but instead he was influenced by the Reformation. He was influenced by a call again to biblical Christianity, and he worked diligently to see that his work showed that. Bach made this statement. He said, music's only purpose should be the glory of God and the recreation of the human spirit. And by recreation there, he didn't mean fun and games. He meant recreation, that, that the only purpose of music should be the glory of God and the recreation of the human spirit. Music was given, according to Bach, to glorify God in heaven and edify man and men and women on earth. It wasn't to make lots of money or to feed the musician's ego or even to be famous. Music was about blessing the Lord and blessing others. Music was about what Jesus is talking about here in verse 23, when he says, so that all will honor the Son. All will honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. The word honor there could very easily be replaced with the word worship. Giving glory to, giving homage to, giving praise to, giving honor to. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, as we've said numerous times, is showing us who John is showing us who Jesus is through this gospel. He says at the end of the book, I'm writing these things that you might believe that he is the Messiah, that you might believe that he's the Son of God, and, and by believing you may have life. That's his whole purpose. And so he, he starts out here, even on this early part of the book, and he comes to this passage, and he's already stirring things up. 
He started up at the, at the wedding feast in Cana by turning the water into wine and, and people scratching their head and saying, you know, where did that come from? That's better than what you served at the beginning. You always serve the best wine first, and when people get a little happy at the, at the wedding, then you bring out the cheap stuff. You gave the cheap stuff first, then you brought out the good stuff. What's going on here? And Jesus was showing them that the law was giving way to grace that the law was giving away the gospel, that he, was come, he has come to form the new covenant, and the old covenant is passing away. The new covenant is now being established by his blood, which was symbolized later by wine at the, at the Last Supper. So, so Jesus is stirring things up. Then he comes here and he goes up to the pool of Bethesda, and he looks at this man who's been crippled for 38 years, and he says, stand up and pick up your pallet and walk. And those Jewish leaders looking around, and they said, what's he doing? This is the Sabbath. He can't do that on the Sabbath. He's breaking the law of God. He's a lawbreaker. And Jesus said, listen, I'm working now because my father is working. My father is the the creator of the Sabbath, and I am the perfect Sabbath is what he's going to ultimately say in this book. I am to be your Sabbath rest, the writer of Hebrews says. It's not about a ritual. It's not about a law. It's about the grace of God permeating your life and changing you, and you seeing who I am. That's what it's all about. Let me tell you something. If healing that guy on the Sabbath and telling him to take take up his pallet and walk, which was work on the Sabbath we talked about last week, what he says in these verses today, this little discourse that he gives, I mean, it really angers him. So much so that in, in verse 16 it says, for this reason the Jews were persecuting him because he was doing things on the Sabbath. But in verse 18, when he starts talking about my father's working now, and I myself am working, it says for this reason they didn't just want to persecute him, they were seeking all the more to kill him. They wanted to put him to death. They wanted to bring an end to this man and his ministry and his life and, and these things he was saying. This is, this is what really upsets them, though. It's not really so much breaking the Sabbath. Listen, they knew they broke the Sabbath all the time. Oh, they, they kept their little extra legal things so that they felt good about themselves. They thought they were holy. But in reality, the spirit of the Sabbath they broke every single week. There's no doubt about that. But when he starts talking about my father is working, and I myself am working. The, the thing that really upsets them is, is he claims to be not a son of God, but the son of God. I don't know if you're old enough to remember a totally blasphemous but absolutely hilarious movie from years ago uh, by one of my favorite comedians, George Burns. He was, he was in the movie, uh, Oh God, and he played the title part. Very bad typecasting, but that's a whole other story. But I remember at one place in that movie, George Burns was asked by someone, well, tell me, is Jesus your son? And George Burns responded, well, yes, Jesus is my son, and so is Muhammad, and so is Buddha, and so is on and on. And, and, and everybody just gloried in that, said, oh, that's so good, that's so cool, as, as though that were really God. I know, Lord. I know. Shouldn't have brought that movie up, I don't think. That's perfect timing. Everybody just praised that as though George Burns really were God. But Jesus is making a claim here, not that I am a son of God. Not that I am a creature of God. Not that I have been created and had a beginning. 
Jesus is making a claim here of absolute and total uniqueness with the Father. Absolute and total uniqueness. He, he claims several things here. First of all, if you look in verse 21, he says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. Well, I mean, from the very beginning, the Jews taught and, and, and stressed that only the Creator could give life. Only the one who created could give life. Only Yahweh was the one who was the life giver. And Jesus is saying here, yeah, my Father is a life giver, but I'm a life giver too. I, I'm one who gives life just like my Father does. And, and he, he's actually implying something deeper here than just giving physical life. He's talking about, I give spiritual life to whom I desire, to whom I please, to whom I wish. I have the power not only to, to resurrect the dead, which he does do and, and, and will do later on in this gospel, but, but he says, I have the power to give life to men and women who believe. I have the power to raise them from spiritual death to spiritual life. Well, the Jews said, only God can give life. How can this man claim to give life? So that upset them greatly. In verse 22, he, he says he's the judge. He said, for even the Father ju doesn't judge anyone, not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given judgment to the Son. Why? They were incensed. God was the great judge of the universe. God was the one who gave the law. God was the one who held us accountable to the law. And God was the one who judged us by the law. They made that very clear throughout all of the old covenant. And yet Jesus comes along and said, listen, God's not, the Father's not even going to judge. He has given judgment over to me. I will be the judge. And if you believe in me, you've already passed out of judgment. If you believe in me, you've been given life, and that life lets you bypass judgment. You are now alive and, and already judged. Your sin is forgiven if you are in the Son. Wow. And they said, who does this guy think he is? And then verse 23, he really angers them. It was bad enough he said that he could give life and that he could judge. But in verse 23, he says, So that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You know what Jesus is saying there? You have to worship me. You have to honor me in the same way you say you honor God. I am from him. I am the unique, one of a kind, never will be again, never has been, son of God. God come in the flesh. I mean, that's, that's, his, question, that's his statement. You know, one of the most perplexing problems of our day for the, for the masses, one of the most perplexing problems is this. How does Christianity fit in with all the other world religions? How does it fit in with Islam, and how does it fit in with Judaism, and how does it fit in with, with Buddhism, and how does it fit in with Hinduism, how does it fit in with all of these other religions? How does Christianity fit in with all of them? The, the, the answer is very simple. It doesn't. But people will say, oh, but, but surely it does, because all the great religions teach, you know, peace and joy and ethical behavior and moral behavior and and so all the religions teach, surely that's where Jesus and Christianity is in common with all the moral religions. No. Every religion comes along and says, listen, here is a moral code, and if you follow that moral code, you'll be made right with God. 
you will earn a relationship with God. Every other religious leader comes along and says, listen, here, let me tell you how to get to God. Let me show you a path. Let me show you a, a way that you can work hard and try hard and get there. Christianity never says that, folks. Christianity, Jesus Christ never said, here's a moral code. You follow that, you're all right. You follow that and everything will be okay. No. Jesus said, you must follow me. You must honor me. You must worship me. You must trust in me. Listen, that blew their minds beyond anything you can imagine. Because it was clear from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. It was clear that no created matter or thing or person is to be worshipped, is to be given honor. As a matter of fact, if you take the Ten Commandments, the first four of the Ten Commandments, that's what they're all about. You have no other gods before me. You have no graven image. There should be nothing worshipped. There, there are a couple of places in Scripture where an angel appears to one of the biblical writers, and the biblical writer immediately falls down at the feet of the angel, which is a, a prostrate uh, position of worship. And, and what does the angel do? The angel says, get up. I'm, just, I'm, I'm a created being just like you are. Don't, don't worship me. I don't, I, I don't have any reason for you to worship me. Stand up. Or when Peter went to Cornelius' house and, and after all the re revelation of God there, and he fell at Peter's feet, and Peter said, get up, quick. You, you can't worship me. I'm, I'm just a man, just like you are. Later, Jesus, after his resurrection, will appear to the disciples. And, and later, he'll appear to Thomas, because Thomas, you remember, said, I, I'm not going to believe this unless I see his nail prints in his hand unless I see him in his feet and see the piercing in his side. I'm not going to believe that he's really alive. And when he appeared, what, did, what were the first words out of, out of uh, Thomas's mouth? My Lord and my God. And he worshiped him. Down by the sea when he met with the disciples before his ascension, and, and the, it says they'd fished all night, didn't catch anything. They threw in, they caught a big catch. They came to the shore and Jesus was fixing food for them and, and and what did they do? They fell down and worshipped him. And Jesus didn't say for one second, don't do that. I'm just a man. I'm just like you. He allowed their worship. But in these verses, he's not only allowing worship, he is demanding worship. He's saying if you want to know the real secret to happiness, if you want to know the real secret to eternal life, if, if you want to know what it means to be, uh, to be right with God, then you will follow me. All the others are prophets, perhaps. They all have a message to say, follow this and you'll be okay. Folks, we don't need a prophet. Prophets have come and gone. What we need is a Savior. And in Jesus Christ, that's exactly who we have. You can't even, you can't even make the claim that Jesus was a great man. He doesn't allow that. In verse 23, he's, he's absolutely ruling out that he's a great man. I want you to know that. Jesus is either something far more than a great man or he's something far less than a great man. He's either far greater or he's far less. If he's, if he's just a great man and he says these things like this, you worship me. Hey, if you want life, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. If he says those kind of things and claims to be a great man, he's not a great man, he's a liar. He's far greater than a great man. If he's a great, just what you would call a great man, 
and makes those kind of claims, he's less than a great man. He's either crazy or he's a liar. C.S. Lewis's tri-statement, you know, he's either Lord, liar, or lunatic. There's no other options. Can't be a great man, can't be a good man, can't be a great moral teacher. Jesus simply does not leave us with the option of calling him a great man or a great prophet or a great teacher. The only option is that he's Savior, Son of God. Because a great man doesn't say, honor me in the same way you honor God. A great man doesn't say, I can give you life eternal. A great man doesn't say, I'm the judge. I'm the one who will ultimately show judgment. But the key to Jesus in this passage and the key to his earthly ministry has to be seen in his submission. Verse 19, you know, he says, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son does in like manner. All through this, all through the Gospels, Jesus is going to make statements like, I've only come to do his will. I've only come to, to, to do what he's told me to do. I've only come to submit. Matter of fact, he will say, his, uh, my will is to do his will. My will is submitted. My will is subjugated to the will of God. I don't come to do what I want to do. I've come to do what the Father has sent me to do. I mean, you're going to see him in the Garden of Gethsemane agonizing over that. We're going to talk about how that agony works into all this. But, but, you know, Jesus said, my whole purpose, my whole meat, my whole desire, talked about that a few weeks ago, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me. And I ask, is your food the same food as Jesus? Is your meat the same meat as Jesus? Is your will to do his will above everything else? That's really the question that every one of us as Christians must ask. Now, now when Jesus submitted himself, Paul talked about that. He kind of amplified on that in Philippians chapter 2. If you want to flip over there, you can, or you can just listen. Paul is talking to us, to believers. He said, don't do anything out of selfishness. Don't do anything out of empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than himself. Now let that sink in a minute. Look at the person next to you. Look at the person across the room. You're not doing that. You're looking at me. My question is, are they more important as far as ministry goes than you yourself are? See, the key to this is, is, the, this is the key to real Christian ministry. I want you to understand, this is kind of a side. This is extra. But that's the real key to the Christian ministry. That's the real key to a Christian marriage. Do you consider the one that you're married to as more important than you? Do you consider their needs more important than your needs? Their desires more important than your desires? Or do you demand your own way? Well, that's not Christian. That's not what Jesus did. He humbled himself. Listen to what Paul said. He said, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, that's what he's telling us to do. And here's the basis on which we do that. Have this attitude or have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, he was God. He was a part of the Trinity. He is a part of the Trinity. Never left that, never left that role. 
But he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, literally a doulos, a slave. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearances of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The most hideous form of death there was. It was torture. It was painful. It was agonizing physically. But he went a step further, and in dying there, he took upon himself your sin and bore the wrath of that sin while hanging on that cross. No wonder he cried out, my Lord, my my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was bearing your sin in your place on that cross. He humbled himself. That's what he's doing in this passage in John. He's showing us his humility. He's showing us why he came. I want to submit to you today that that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is not a great man. He is greater than a great man. He is the Son of God, Messiah. He is the one who has the right to judge. He is the one who has the right to give life to whom he wishes. He is the one who has the right to worship and honor. But in this passage, he gives you and me some principles for what you might say is the principle of maturity, the principle for finding peace, the principle for finding joy and contentment. And that principle is simply this, submitting to his will. To live a life where you can say, my will is to do his will. My goal in life, will you do it perfectly like Jesus did? No. But you even ask the question, is my will to honor him? Is my life committed, even in the very difficult, tough times of life, is my life committed to honoring him first and glorifying him first? Or is it to revenge? Or is it to spouting off and and trying to get my way. That's the question that has to do that. Jesus was willing to do that. He submitted himself. He humbled himself, even to the point of death on a cross, to the point of being persecuted, to the point of having plots to kill him take place. He said, my will is to do his will. My will is submitted to him. My will is submitted to the Father. Several things about submission you need to understand. Submission is not stoic resignation. Submission is wrestling. I'm not talking about the kind you see on television. Wrestling in your own spirit with the Spirit of God. It's not a stoic resignation that says, oh well, I guess God's going to do it anyway. It's not the kind that that, that the actor had in Jesus Christ Superstar where he had Jesus in the garden and he said, Father, you're, you're, you're too powerful, you're too mighty, you're, you're going to do it anyway, so just go ahead and do it to me before I back out. That's not, that's not submission. Submission is wrestling with our own desires and wrestling with our own selfishness and saying, I just want to know your will. Jesus said in the garden, he said, Father, if there is any other way, just 
Father, if there's any other way that, that I don't have to go to that cross, if there's anything else you can do, I'd really like that. But, he said, not my will, but your will be done. And he went to the cross. Submission is a wrestling. Submission means a decision to trust. It's a decision to trust, to will, to do His will, even if it costs me. Some of you may be caught in ethical situations at work where if you do what you know is His will, it may cost you your job. It may cost you monetarily. It may cost you to lose a client or something. And, and you say, but, uh, so maybe I ought to just fudge here and just tell this lie or fudge here and do this unethical thing. No, you, you can't do that as a disciple of Christ. You've got to come to that point where to my will is to do His will, to will to do His will, even if it costs me. It's not a knuckling under. It's not a cowering before Him and saying, okay, I've got to do this. But saying, Lord, I know that you're in control and I know you're going to take care of me because I will to do your will. I knew a friend one time who lost a child to death. And the, some of his friends of a little different theological persuasion came to him and said, now listen, this is God's will. You've got to submit to that. You've got to knuckle under that. And you cannot grieve. You've got to, you've got to rejoice because that was God's will. And, and he bought that. And he went for a year or so just saying, I'm not grieving. I'm rejoicing. It was God's will. My child is now in heaven with the Lord. I'm happy, blah, blah, blah. And it went for about a year, a year and a half. And then one day, bam, he hit the wall. And he thought, you know, God... I didn't like that, but I've tried to be nice about it. But I've really got some problems with you taking my daughter. So he started to wrestle. He started to wrestle with submission to God. Ultimately, after about another year, he came to a point of true submission. Not to say, oh, I'm happy that God took my child. That's, that's pathological. But coming to a point of saying, God, I don't know why. I don't understand your purpose. Lord, I submit to that because I will to do your will. Submission really means looking at life from a higher vantage point. That's what submission is. It's wrestling about it, wrestling with God. Yes, it's, it, it's willing to do his will. It's, it's, a, it's, it's coming to make a decision to trust him, even in tough times. But it's also seeing things from a different vantage point. Seeing your problems from his perspective. That's what, that's what the writer of Hebrews, what Luke says in, in Hebrews 5 when he says, uh, my Jesus' prayers were heard because of his submission. I'm talking about the garden. Some would say, well, I don't, I don't know if his prayers were heard or not. Were they really heard? They, he prayed that it would pa- this cup would pass from him, but it didn't pass. It, it came. Was his prayers heard? And yes, they were heard because Jesus was able to to see it from a a totally higher, different perspective. And we have to do that too. It's not easy. But it's to come to realize this. You can be sure of this in your prayer life. I know a lot of you say, well, you know, I prayed for this and I prayed for that and God hadn't answered my prayer. He has. Every single time. 
But you say, but I don't believe it. I don't think he has because I asked for this specific thing and I didn't get this specific thing. I love what Tim Keller has said on, on numerous occasions. I've heard him make this statement. He said, you know, you can be sure of this. The Bible teaches this. That God will always give you what you would have asked for if you had known what he knows. Now, 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 let's sink in a minute. That's contrary to a lot of what we think and how we think about answered prayer. But God will always give you, through your prayers, what you would have asked for if you had known what he knows. In other words, if you can somehow get a glimpse of his vantage point, you'll see that what God is doing in not giving you what you think you need or what you almost demand that you want, if you can just get a little bit of his vantage point through the Word of God, through prayer, you'll see that he's giving you what you would have asked for if you'd known what he knows. Because he is doing he is doing what is best for you to mold you and shape you into the image of his Son. You say, but Bill, some of those things... Some of those things that come into my life are not very pleasant. Yeah, I know. Believe me, I've been there. Some of those things are things I would really have rather just said, Lord, I tell you what, I'll trust you and just don't let this happen. But you know what? He knows our heart. He knows that if he didn't let that happen, no, we really wouldn't trust him as we need to learn to trust him. We wouldn't, really wouldn't come to a point of willing to do his will unless we go through the crucible, unless we go through the fire of Him shaping us through difficult times. Somewhere in this service, I can't remember if it's just something Jeff said or something he read, or, but somewhere we talked about, does the, do we really think the potter and the clay are on the same level? We're the clay. He's the potter. He is actively involved in shaping you if you're a believer. If your goal is to, if your will is to do his will, if you're if you've been changed by his Holy Spirit coming into your life and renewing you and saving you, if you're really a believer, he's working his purpose out in your life for your good, for your edification, and for his glory. Even though even though that may be tough on you. And it was easy on Jesus when he saw himself hanging on a cross. It wasn't easy. But he willed to do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father was to save a people for himself. And the only way he could do it was through the sacrificial, perfect Lamb of God. It's the only way. So why is He the only way? Because He's the only one that ever did that. Why do we say that Christianity doesn't fit in with any other world religion? Why do we say it's totally different, totally unique, totally out of the, out of the realm of what they are? It's because it's the only one where the founder, the prophet, as some would want to call him, gave his life that we might live. When God disappoints us, 
And I almost hate that phrase. But when God disappoints us, He's usually attempting to get our attention that there are idols in our life. There are idols in our life, and He's trying to break those bonds of those idols. What's your idol? He's, he's a mighty God. I remember, I remember Lucy in, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis's great children's novel that's one of my favorites as an adult. I remember in that, in that book, as Lucy's back in Narnia, and, and, and he goes to, uh, she goes to the beaver's house, and they're talking about Aslan coming, the great lion, the Christ figure in the book. And Lucy's here to talk about this lion, and she knows about lions, and she says, well, let me ask you, is, is Aslan's a lion, we're going to go try to find Aslan. Is, is he safe? To which Mr. Beaver says, safe? Heavens, no, he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You know, we, live in a, we, we try to live lives where many times our God and our Christ is too safe. Just too safe. He's just a buddy that we can kind of call on for what we want. He's not Lord who demands that we worship Him, who says, I can give you life, who says, I'm the one who will be the judge. But if you believe in me and honor me and worship me, even as you worship the Father, we are one. You will have life. And I will shape your life. Let me ask you this question. What areas of your life do you need to be willing to do His will? What are areas of your life? Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's school. What areas of your life have you made such an idol that your will is going to be done in that area, not His will. And you may be sitting there and say, oh, I don't have any of those. Well, I do. And I struggle with it every day. My desire, my passion, is ever to let my will be His will. Let's pray. Father, when Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you that he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death and into life. He was telling an absolute truth. Father, we live in a nation that can hear the word at any time. All they have to do is turn on a 
radio and be discerning. They hear your word. All they have to do is go to the internet and be discerning. They hear your word. They come to church. And Lord, I hope they come here discerning to hear your word. Father, so often we hear it without acting on it. We hear it without really believing with all our heart. Father, I pray this morning that we will not harden our hearts as Israelites did on so many occasions. That, Lord, we will submit to you with an, a desire to will, to do your will. Father, empower us for that. Engage us for that. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.